invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. We are picking up this morning our exposition of 1 Peter. We've kind of been in and out of it for a while. However, I see for the, the next foreseeable future, the next month at least, being here in 1 Peter, going verse by verse, phrase by phrase through this book. And before we actually get to our text this morning, I thought it would be helpful for us to review 1 Peter, where we've been, where we're going. We don't do this often, but it is something that we needed to review every now and then just to kind of catch the, the book in context. Peter wrote this book to a group of scattered believers. It says in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, that he wrote to these people who were in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. It's the region of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey is where he was writing to them. <clears throat> and he called them, there in verse 1, he called them aliens. Now, they were not aliens because they were from a different planet. They were not aliens because they were transplants from another location into one of these regions. They were aliens because they had believed in Jesus Christ. In verse 3, it says that Jesus Christ caused us to be born again, is what it says. It says they're different than the majority of the people in the world. Not only have they been born of flesh and blood, but they've also been born of the Spirit. That's what it means to be born again, born from above, born of the Spirit and because of that, they are no longer of this world. They are aliens and strangers. And that is true of every believer in Jesus Christ. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. We have been born again. And that means that our true hope is not being born into this life, but being born into the life to come. It's where our hope is placed. We place our hope there because we believe and trust in the work that Christ has done for us. And then Peter talking about how they're aliens, then talking about how Christ has caused us to be born again, then begins to, to talk about this great uh, inheritance that we have. And he says in chapter 1, verse 4, that this inheritance that's reserved in heaven for us is imperishable, it's undefiled, and it will not fade away. It's secure. It's, it's reserved in heaven, as it says in verse 5, for you who believe. It's through faith that we obtain that inheritance and Peter's very careful here to speak about the glories and, and we can go on like we, we did when we were expositing these words about what heaven is like what it means to be imperishable what it means to be undefiled what it means that it doesn't ever fade away how secure it is reserved for us in heaven it's there it's set for us because Peter wants to put the glories of heaven before us before he puts the sufferings on earth before us Look at verse 6, where the sufferings come. He says, In this great future of the inheritance, you rejoice, even though now for a little while, he says, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. They're going through difficulties. The people of Peter's day were suffering through trials in their life. Now, they weren't all the same. As it says here, they were various trials. Some were experiencing some things. Some were experiencing the other. In the flow of the letter, Peter will get pretty detailed about some of the types of uh, sufferings that they are undergoing, but he doesn't do that until chapter 2, verse 11. He spends some time before we get there speaking about how we ought to live as a result of this great inheritance we have. In other words, he gives the good news first, and then he gives the bad news. The good news is great salvation that we have, marvelous beyond all thought 
comprehension. Chapter 7, Peter says that your faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 9, he speaks about just how how our faith will, will end in the salvation of our souls. Our souls will not be destroyed, but they'll be saved forever. Verses 12 to 14, 12, 10 to 12, Peter speaks about this marvelous salvation. The prophet spent hours and hours and days and months and years studying and studying and studying, trying to comprehend what it is that we now have. So great is this salvation. And our, our hope that we have is so great that Peter says in verse 13 that we ought to fix our hope completely on the grace to be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Means that all of us ought to have our eyes upward and not upon the earth. Fixing our hope completely there because our inheritance is so glorious and so great. And he says, well, there's some implications about the way you must live. If that's where your hope is, live like God, be holy. For he is holy. Verse 15. If that's where you're going to be, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Verse 17. If that's where your hope is, live appropriately here. Verse 22. Love one another fervently from the heart. And then chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Put off the sin. Take away all those sins, malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And then he says... Focus like a newborn baby longs for the pure milk of the Word. Focus and long for the Word of God so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So you would grow in your understanding of the salvation. You would grow in coming closer to your salvation that you would long for it. And then chapter 4, he says, come to Christ. Come to this living stone. Yes, he's been rejected by man, but to us who believe, he is choice and precious. Come to him and make him so much your desire and your delight that you can't help but speak about Him. Proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Talk about heaven. Talk about where you're going. Talk about the glories of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 9. And then he turns a corner in chapter 2, verse 11. And it begins to get, as I said, the bad news. It speaks about the practical ways in which the people were suffering. He says in chapter 2, verse 11, they were suffering from the fleshly lusts that were waging war against the soul. He says in chapter 2, verse 12, that these Gentiles were slandering them as evildoers, speaking badly against them, although they were doing good. Verses 13 and 14, we get a sense of the political environment made it difficult for them. In our verses, in 18 through 20, we're going to see about these some of these slaves had a difficult time with unruly and unreasonable and wicked and perverted masters. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Some women had unbelieving, disobedient husbands that were causing marriages to suffer hardship. Chapter 3, verse 9. People were doing evil against them. Verse 9. They were insulting them. Chapter 3, verse 13. They were suffering for the sake of righteousness. Actually, that's verse 14. Verse 16 speaks about how they're being slandered. Verse 17 speaks about how they were suffering for doing what's right. Here they were walking righteously and holy and being slandered and suffering for it. In chapter 4, verse 4, they're being maligned for having turned away from their former ways. In 
chapter 4, verse 12, Peter describes their suffering as a fiery ordeal is coming upon them. Very difficult for them. Chapter 4, verse 13, he describes their trials as sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Now you just think about the Christ and how he suffered and how we reflect upon that in the Lord's Supper. These people were, were sharing in those types of sufferings. Chapter 4, verse 14, they're being reviled. Verse 16, they were suffering for being a Christian. Now, mixed and mingled in amidst all these words and all these hardships was counsel as to how to deal with them. And time after time, Peter tells them to live righteously. Yes, you're suffering now, but live righteously in the midst of it. Chapter 2, verse 11, abstain from your fleshly lusts. Walk righteously. Chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Let them see your good deeds, even in the midst of them slandering you. Chapter 2, verse 16. Use your freedom properly, not as a covering for evil. Chapter 2, verse 20. Do what's right. Chapter 3, verse 2. Wives, keep your behavior chaste and respectful. Chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. Don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, right? Walk righteously. They do evil with you, do what Jesus said. Turn the other cheek. They insult you, do what Jesus did. He kept his mouth shut. Don't insult in return. Walk righteously. Be zealous for doing good, chapter 3, verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 14. Do righteous. Be righteous. Chapter 3, verse 15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Chapter 3, verse 16. Keep a good conscience before God. And have good behavior, even when you're slandered. Chapter 3, verse 17. Suffer for doing what's right rather than for doing what's wrong. Telling them to do what's right and suffer for it. Chapter 4, verse 2. Don't live in the lusts of men. And then from verse 3 of chapter 4 through verse 11, we see many, many exhortations to righteousness. How it is you ought to live. Walk righteously, even in the suffering that's coming upon you. Don't retaliate. Don't despise it. Embrace it and walk righteously through it. And perhaps one of the best summary verses of all of Peter's counsel advice practically comes in chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. He said, listen, you're going to survive your sufferings you believe it's coming upon you from the sovereign hand of God. That's the way God works. He brings suffering upon our lives so that we would in turn reflect to Him and entrust our souls to a faithful Creator in doing what's right in inflicting the suffering upon us. That's how you're supposed to live. And the final promise of this letter comes in chapter 5, verse 10. He says this, After you've suffered for a little while, if you suffered here on earth, just a little while, or, or maybe your trial only lasts a couple months or just a couple years, after you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory, chapter 1, His eternal glory, the inheritance, He says, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Indeed, the sufferings we have are now but God will eventually bring us into His eternal glory. As I've said often in the past few months, the theme of this epistle is what? Say it with me. Suffer now, glory later. They were suffering, but later they would experience the glory of God. 
If we come to our text now this morning, chapter 2, verse 18, we're going to see the same things. We see servants who are suffering, but they're supposed to walk righteously in trusting that there'll be glory later as God looks upon them and finds favor with them. My message this morning is entitled, Suffering Servants. Suffering Servants. Let me read it for you. Servants, chapter 2, verse 18, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do it as right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. I trust that you can see those themes working its way in there. The, the, the glory awaits us as we find favor with God. But right now, we need to submit even to those evil masters. We need to continue to do righteous. Well, I begin with my first point this morning. Submit to your earthly masters. Verse 18, I take this point almost directly out of the language here. Verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters. Now, in the first century A.D., when these words were written, slavery was very much a reality in the Roman Empire, which Peter was writing. It's been estimated that perhaps even as much as a half of the Roman Empire were slaves. No doubt there are many who received this letter then who found themselves to be servants in this life. That is, under the authority of masters who told them what to do. Peter knew this, being more practical with his letter, and he writes to give advice and counsel to them. And he calls themselves them to submit themselves willingly to those who are masters over them. Now, when we hear about slavery, we think instantly to American slavery, which was a horrible institution. It's our natural tendency to think place of what took place in America, of African Americans hunted down in Africa, placed like sardines on ships, brought to America, sold in the common market as property, and regarded as dirt and scum in society. Image bearers ought not to be treated that way. They're forced to long, hard labor by their owners, little sympathy and compassion. Now, by and large, slavery in the Roman Empire was not like this. <clears throat> With nearly half the population being slaves, many slaves held respectable positions, like nurses and doctors and teachers. Many slaves were in the position of management, overseeing others. We worked, they were educated. They simply didn't have their freedom. Some slaves were able to purchase their freedom. Some slaves willingly put themselves into service for the master. They might um, be able to pay a debt that they owed. Some decided to even remain a slave after their master had offered to let them free because of the situation environment was good for them. But don't let these sorts of things deceive you into thinking slavery was always wonderful because they weren't. I mean, first of all, I don't care how good your slavery is, it still is slavery. No chance at freedom for some of these slaves. You're at the mercy of your master. And certainly there were those who were abused. Some slaves had been conquered in war and been subjected to slavery against their will and when they'd been captured, just like the Africans brought over to America. Other slaves have been kidnapped and forced into service. 
There were many masters who were cruel to their slaves, and I'm sure that the cruelty of some of these slaves rivaled the cruelty of some American slave owners in the South. But it's in this context that Peter writes, some slaves are experiencing a good slavery, good masters, some are experiencing terrible slavery situation. Yet all of this, Peter still calls those who are slaves who are listening, reading this letter to be submissive to their master. Listen, he gives no room out of this command. It doesn't matter whether servants were nicely treated or harshly treated by their masters. All of them were called to be submissive. Look at verse 18. He says, be submissive not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. You really need to feel the weight of this. Paul's exhorting those all across the Roman Empire who are slaves not to revolt against their slavery, but rather to submit to their masters even if they're being treated unfairly. Their submission wasn't merely be external compliance. There was this submissive attitude, right? With fear is what it says. <clears throat> be submissive with all respect. Literally, it's be submissive with all fear. In other words, their submission was to be, to be done in such a way that gave a healthy fear to their master. No resisting, no talking back, no complaining. Rather, respecting their authority. Ultimately, because they feared God. Chapter 2, verse 17 says that. It says, honor all people, including your masters. Love the brotherhood among the church. Show great love there. Fear God. Honor the king. As you fear God, you fear those institutions he's take, that he has put in place in your life. One of those is the fact that you find yourself as a slave. Slaves are to submit with fear because God's authority is displayed upon with earthly masters they were under. Now, I think about this. For those who had good and kind and gentle masters, this probably wouldn't have been much of a problem. It's easy to submit to one who cares for you, who compliments you when you do a job well done, who sympathizes with your weaknesses. In fact, it's even the case that it's possible even for a good master to turn a rebellious slave into a submissive slave. In recent days, I've been reading bedtime stories to my children. Um, not done it in, in last week or two, but before that, we've been reading a lot of these stories. And, and uh, if you can get a copy of these books, I would encourage you to. Kids or parents with young children, our kids love this. And it also, it's a little bit of an incentive on our behalf. We say, kids, get ready for bed. If you get ready quickly, we'll have time for a story. If not, no story. And so they, it's, it's amazing how lightning they are. Just pew, pew, and, and then they come. So I want to read a story for you this morning. So I want you to imagine yourself tucked away in bed. Imagine Dad reading a story to you. And this is how I read it with the kids. So I might be a little bit more expressive, but this is... In those bad old days when slavery was still practiced, old Joe stood in the marketplace awaiting the auction. He was a grand specimen of manhood, big, strong, and healthy. But on his face at this moment was an expression of anger and stubbornness that had only faintly reflected the rebellious feelings of his heart. His master had died, 
And in consequence, he had many others of his fellow slaves were to be sold at a public auction to the highest bidder. How he hated it all. He hated his chains. He hated the system which made it possible for human beings to be bought and sold like cattle. He hated the dreadful humiliation. While he stood there waiting in the hot sun, there grew up in his heart a determination that he would not be bought. And if he were, he would never work for his new master. Presently, his name was called. The auctioneer began to describe him. Joe, fine, strong fellow, lots of hard work in him yet. I will not work, cried Joe in desperation. The auctioneer ignored him and went on giving his age, his height, his weight, and other particulars. What offers, he concluded. Someone made a bid. I will not work, cried Joe at the top of his voice. No one bothered. The bidding went on. Joe listened with interest that merged into amazement. He had no idea that he was worth so much. Up and up went the price. Gradually, the number of bidders decreased, but two or three went on. One man seemed determined to purchase him, whatever the cost. At last, when the price had reached the highest figure Joe had ever heard offered for a slave, the hammer fell. Boom. He was sold. As soon as new master came over to take him, I will not work, said Joe. You can thrash me, but I will not work. The new master said nothing, but proceeded to lead him away to his wagon. All the way out to the plantation, Joe kept muttering on to himself, I won't work, I won't work. At last they arrived, and the master, instead of taking Joe to the usual dirty slave quarters, led him to a neat little cottage, remarking, Joe, this will be your home while you're with us. This for me, Joe surprised, said Joe surprised. Thank you, but I will not work. You don't need to work, said the master. Just live here as long as you please. But master, cried Joe in utter amazement, aren't you going to make, try to make me work? Oh no, said the master quietly. I bought you to set you free. To set me free? Oh, master, cried Joe, falling on his knees before him. How can I thank you enough? I will gladly serve you always and do anything you want me to do. From that moment, Joe became the most faithful and loyal servant his master ever had. And children, what that good master did for Joe, Jesus has done for us. He saw us standing in the marketplace, as it were, chained with sin, and our hearts full of rebellion, and he gave everything he had to set us free. The Bible says that we were redeemed not with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with precious blood of Christ. When such a price had been paid for us, what should be our attitude? What should we say to him who paid it all? What else can we say then? Jesus, dear Master, we love and serve you all our days. Uncle Arthur stories. They're all about like that. But the lesson here is that even a good master can change a rebellious slave. It doesn't always happen to be like this. But it is a good illustration of the ease with which servants find submitting to a good and gentle master. And so we have found Jesus to be in our life, right? He has set us free, and what can we do but serve Him in our freedom? Well, the opposite, you know what? That might be true as well. It may be that a submissive slave changes 
his evil and cruel master. The slave does everything his master commands. It may well be the case the master begins to have compassion on the slave and treat him with respect. We don't know all the details about Joseph, but when Joseph was in prison, Genesis 39, he was thrown into prison to be a special prisoner of the king. But because he was faithful and God showed favor upon him, he was soon elevated to be in charge of all the other prisoners. And prison guards aren't always the nicest of people. Particularly in those days, they had to be mean and strong. And perhaps this uh, behavior of Joseph changed the prison guard. We don't know. But listen, good behavior is no guarantee your master will change and begin treating you with respect. My guess is probably it's a bit unlikely because unrighteous people rule over righteous people. Oftentimes they will take advantage of them. But it doesn't matter. Peter doesn't rely upon future changes of slaves or masters. It doesn't matter whether your master is good or gent- good and gentle or whether your master is cruel and perverted. Servants are called to be submissive to their masters with an attitude of respect, period, end of statement, no exceptions, no questions. You know, fundamentally, we are called to do this as Christians because we are free. Look back at chapter 2, verse 16. He says, act as free men. We are free. We should act as free men. But do not use your freedom as a covering of evil, but use it what? As bond slaves of God. We are free, but we are slaves of God. And as slaves of God, we will do His bidding. Not because we have to, but because we are free to do so. As believers in Christ, we're free from the tyranny of other men. We serve the sovereign Lord. Our sins have been forgiven. God has given us a new nature. Our freedom in Christ then compels us to do what is right. As it relates to our masters, what is right is being submissive to them. And that's what old Joe, the slave, realized. He was free. (laughs) Once he was free, he's willing to serve. That's our condition. We are free. And in so doing, as we're slaves, we ought to submit to our, our masters. Peter's counsel here is just like Paul. Paul speaks in several of his epistles directly to slaves as well. Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, and Titus. And in every single one of these epistles, he writes specific application to slaves, and it sounds exactly like it does in 1 Peter. Listen to Ephesians 6, 5 through 8. You get the same flavor. Absolute submission to master slaves. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service, men pleaders, but as slaves of Christ to the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive back from the Lord whether slave or free. You catch that there? Same thing that Peter's saying. Colossians 3. 22 to 25, same thing. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not merely with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequence of the wrong which he has done in that without partiality. 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, same thing. Let all those who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of our God 
and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who are believers of their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but let them serve them all the, no, all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Right? Now let's submit, and especially to those who are believing. Titus 2, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. To be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Now, you might ask yourself at this point, why does the Bible say this? I mean, if the abuse of slavery is so bad, why doesn't the Bible simply condemn slavery as we have rightly done in America? I think much of it has to do with the way that God changes the world. See, God has seen fit not to change the world through mighty powers, through great excesses of force. Oh, He will do that someday, but today that's not how He's doing it. Rather, the Lord will change this world as Christians are faithful to demonstrate that this world is not their home. That's how God will change the world. As the world looks upon us and sees that we, we willingly... Take on unjust suffering. That we willing will, will live for Christ. And that we will die for Christ. We will make Christ to appear as gain. When the world sees that, even when every human instant, instinct within us pushes at us and compels us to cry out with the injustice, the world will look upon us and say, they're different. Maybe there is something true to their faith. See, when Christ came to the world, He submitted Himself to the authorities of His day and suffered for it, and the world forever changed. It says in 1 Peter 2.21 that that's our purpose also. Christ has called us to suffer exactly as Christ did. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. And we'll look at that next week. But it's a powerful example. We ought to follow the, the example of Christ midst of unjust suffering. We're called to submit ourselves to the authorities even if they're unreasonable and fair. And Christianity, don't get me wrong, it is revolutionary. But it's not revolutionary by strong protests and displays of power. It's revolutionary as the world sees that we have a better hope. And there's no better way of demonstrating to the world you have a better hope than submitting yourself to 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 righteous behavior, even when suffering unjustly, even when life is difficult, and through the course of time, the Lord will establish His kingdom. What do you think it took to transform the world from being utterly pagan when Christ died, the whole Roman Empire utterly pagan, to 300 years later, Constantine declaring the whole Roman Empire to be Christian? How did that come about? It came about as the saints were faithful generation after generation after generation after generation to to do what is right when suffering unjustly eventually they saw this is true and the whole Roman Empire embraced at least in form Christianity because there were so many Christians flourishing and propping up alright well at this point now I want to ask the question to whom do these words apply who do they apply to the simplest and most straightforward applications to employees. Obviously, probably many of us have heard enough sermons on slaves. They might think it's employees. Wayne Grudem writes this, even though there's no exact parallel 
to such servant status in modern society the fact that slavery was by far the most common kind of employee-employer relationship in the ancient world and that it encompassed a broad range of decrees of functional and economic freedom means the application of Peter's directives to employees today is very appropriate. I think you can probably see that. I fully agree. We can easily take these words. Verse 18, Employees, be submissive to your bosses with all respect, not only to those bosses who are good and gentle, but also to those bosses who are unreasonable. Now, for those of you in the workforce, it's a clear command, clearest day. You're called to submit to your boss. Now, it is interesting. We're not slaves. If we have an unreasonable boss... We can always do what? We can always look for another job. You have total freedom to do that. But while you're here in this job, you need to submit totally to your boss. And then you can get to another job and have that boss go. But you know what I found? I found oftentimes that those who have unruly bosses, when they go and get another job, you know what kind of boss they get? They get unruly and unreasonable bosses. And then they go again, and they get unruly and reasonable bosses. And they go again and again unruly. It's like this boss follows them around all the time. No, not really. But it has more to say about the disposition of the heart to submit. I've been in a situation where people have complained about bosses, but I found the boss to be totally fine and reasonable. Why? Because I chose to submit to the boss, whereas my fellow worker chose to rebel against the boss. So how you doing? Those of you in the workforce, how you doing? Are you submissive to your bosses with all respect? How about this? What if you'd ask your boss? Think about this. It would be a radical thing. Great opportunity for evangelism right here. Right? You go to your boss on Monday and say, Mr. Boss, I'm a church-going man or woman. And uh, this past Sunday, the pastor preached a message about the workplace. And he demonstrated from Scripture, beyond shadow of a doubt, that the scripture would call us employees to submit to our masters, our bosses, with all respect. That means that I'm supposed to submit to you with all respect. Now, I'm eager to be obedient to the scriptures because I'm a Christian. Could you please tell me, Mr. Boss, how I'm doing? Am I being submissive to you? Am I doing so with all respect? Are there any areas in my work which I might show improvement? What do you think your boss would do? great way for evangelism. I'm standing in the Word of God. God tells me to do this. I want to do this. How can I help? Am I doing this? How can I help you better? It'll give favor in your eyes from the boss, perhaps, hopefully. But it might not. You might say, oh, he's a Christian. Let's go after the Christian. You might do that. But you need prepared to walk righteously even in the midst of it. But before we go on to verses 19 and 20, there's another area which I think um, might apply this. You supply this in any place where you have somebody directly over you. Students, you might apply that to your teachers. You go to class on Monday, tell your teachers, right, Malin? That'd be a good thing to do, maybe. Go to your teacher and say, oh, I learned on church. I need to be submissive to you, right? How am I doing? Bring her an apple first. But before I go on, I think there's another application. And it has to do with this word servants. This word servant here isn't your typical word for slave. The Greek word normally for slave is doulos, used over a hundred times in, in the New Testament. Doulos means a slave. Every bit the sense where you, you think about it. 
But the word Peter chooses to use here is the word oiketai. It comes from the, the Greek word oikos. And this word oiketai is used only four times in Scripture. Oikos means house. And so what we get here is it's a house servant. Is more maybe the particular application he's talking about it. Though it is general enough to be used of a slave in general. He's talking about a house slave. Do we have any house slaves in our congregation? Do we have any house slaves in our congregation? Who of you are house slaves? Who of you? Come on. Anna, are you a house slave? Amanda? Your children are house slaves. That's who you are. Now, you're really not slaves. You're children. And you ought to be dealt with parents and children. You ought to, you ought to be dealt with in, in that way. However, it's not so bad for you to think of yourself as a servant of Jesus. It's a slave of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord. And ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. You can be a slave in the home. So children... You ought to serve your parents at home with all respect. Even to those parents who you think are unreasonable. That's what this passage is calling you to do. And children, you can serve your parents around the house. You can pick up your room. You can help with the laundry. You can help with the dishes. You can vacuum the living room. You can mop the floors. You can shovel the snow. You can mow the lawn. You can dust the furniture. You can help with food preparations. You can do whatever your parents ask you to do. I would call you to do that. I would encourage you to do that. In fact, another portion of Scripture, I think it's uh, Colossians 3, verse 20. Children, be obedient to your parents in most things. Right? Isn't that what it says? What's it? Children, be obedient to your parents in, in all things. And you can be obedient by serving them and helping them in the home. And so how does it apply? It applies everywhere where there's a master you are submitting to. Or where there's anybody in authority over you. Do so with delight as behooves a Christian in their conduct. Well, submit to your earthly masters. Second now, and we'll be faster at this point. Verses 19 and 20. Find favor from your heavenly master. Find favor from your heavenly master. Now, it might just be the case that some of you children of parents you think are unreasonable. Well, you're getting older. They're like seemingly getting more and more clueless all the time. They don't understand you. They don't understand your life. They don't understand the, the freedom that you have and the friends you want to do and things you want. And they're stopping you from doing these things. And you might think that they are unreasonable. Well, verses 19 and 20 address you perfectly. It may also be that some of your boss have bosses that are unreasonable. Maybe too much pressure upon you to stay at work late. Maybe demanding a higher standard. You can't possibly reach that standard. Well, if this is you... I exhort you here from 19 and 20 to find favor from your heavenly master. Right here it is. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. I think the key to these two verses is what begins these sections and begins these two verses. It's just this phrase, this finds favor. It begins in verse 19, it ends in verse 20. This finds favor with God, it ends. This finds favor with God. Now, your translation might say something different. It might say, this is commendable. This is commendable with God. And this is commendable. Or it might say, this is a gracious thing. 
This is the way that God will show grace to you. At the end, this is a gracious thing. This is the way that God will show grace to you. Right? The idea is all, all the same, is that, that God's favor, His kindness will come upon you if you follow these things. I don't know your circumstance at work or home, but here's one example of what Peter's talking about. He's talking about the boss telling you something to do, which is maybe against company policy, maybe against your conscience, or maybe it's flat out illegal. And rather than engaging that activity, you refuse because of your conscience toward God. Or, or maybe you report that activity to your boss's boss. You become a, a whistleblower. And then maybe he gets in trouble, and then maybe you then get in trouble. And if you endure under such unjust suffering, God is well pleased with you. And you can comfort in knowing that you found favor in God's sight. That is doing what's right, perhaps resisting your master because you're obeying God and not man, and then you receive the blunt of it. For instance, I have a friend who used to work in corporate America for one of the large accounting firms. And um, at one point he was out whining and dining some customers. And in the process of dinner, they took him to a, a comedy club. His boss had arranged this whole thing. And when some of the jokes were told, my friend realized, this is not the place for me to be. He got up and left, went to his hotel room early for the evening. The next day, his boss was infuriated with him. He said, don't you ever do that again. I mean, we're trying to wine and dine our customers, and you're getting up and leaving. And he said, with all reverence and humility back to his boss, he said he couldn't be in the same room where God was blaspheming and people were laughing at it. He just couldn't do that. And so he was suffering for doing what is right. I think that's what verse 19 is talking about. And he was finding favor with God, though he was receiving the blunt end of the wrath of his boss. I think that's what Peter's talking about. Your master gives you an order, but in good conscience you can't do what's asked, so you disobey and receive the consequences thereby suffer unjustly. Now, in Peter's day, the punishment was often to maybe take out a whip. Be beaten into submission. In our day, suffering comes different. No one's going to beat you at work. right? But it may be probation at work. Your job may be on the line. Or you simply may be fired. Listen, and if this happens to you, I'd encourage you to entrust yourself to God who judges righteously. Well, he clarifies the application here in verse 20. He says this. He says, You don't find favor in God's sight for simply enduring patience with enduring punishment with patient resolve. Listen, suppose you're in a work environment and your boss gives you clear command to do something, you fail to do it. And then later, he's like, Did I ask you to do that? And he's like, Yeah, why didn't you do it? Uh, you don't have a good reason for it? You get punished for it? Maybe get on probation. Maybe get fired. The favor of God isn't upon you by not challenging your boss and willfully accepting your punishment and leaving out the door. There's no favor in that. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure with patience? There's no credit enduring the punishment that comes upon you for your sin. But if, he says, you do what is right, you patiently endure. This finds favor with God, right? This is what finds favor with God. Your boss gives you, gives you the task of reporting the profits of your business to the IRS. He wants you to ignore the cash receipts. You say, no, i got to put, and you put the cash receipts in and report them to the IRS, right? Inflates the income beyond what he wants. Your boss finds out and you lose your job. 
a result of that, even your, your suffering is increased because God withholds a job for you for another six months. But through it all, if you can joyfully entrust your soul to a faithful creator in doing what's right and realize that I've just done what's right and that's what's taken place, that finds great favor with God. And here's why it finds favor with God. And here's what finds favor with God. Rather than climbing the corporate ladder, which requires you go up or out, in order to get up, you need to make compromises. You don't make those compromises, so you're out. That finds favor with God. This is what finds favor with God. A slanderous email is sent throughout your entire company about you, and rather than retaliating, you just carry on your business in righteousness. That's what finds favor with God. Children, we apply it to children. This is what finds favor with God. If you're being untreated unfairly at home, entrust yourself to God. You walk righteously. You submit to your parents. And you obey them with all respect. God will shine upon you. God will look upon you. See, because God loves to see people patiently enduring unjust suffering. God loves to see people enduring unjust suffering. Why? Because it puts the power of the gospel on display for all to see. And allows God to be God because he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So when people see you behaving this way, maybe just perchance they might ask you, you're different. You ought to retaliate. Go to your lawyer. Go seek some vengeful action. Justify yourself. What's different about you? Why aren't you doing that? What are they doing? They're asking you for the hope that's within you. And then he can tell them the marvels of Christ and spread his word. You have a chance to proclaim Christ to them. So simply from these verses, I'm just praying that God will give you all the strength to submit to your earthly masters and to find favor from your heavenly master. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that your word would come forth. You, by your Holy Spirit, would convict hearts of those who need to be convicted that in all things Christ would be exalted and glorified here at Rock Valley Bible Church.